That's great. Thank you. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah. Okay. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay. Um, I think it's a little daunting, especially this time of night, to discuss the whole issue of financial crises in about a half hour, but I'll do my best. Um, basically, I want to discuss why there are financial crises. Thank you, Shirley. Why there are financial crises. And uh, I can only discuss some of the reasons. I'm looking at some of the main reasons. Many books on the 2008 global financial crisis, one of the criticisms I have of them, and I'm sure a lot of you who are here have read, have read them, uh, such books, describe it as a rather unique event. However, financial crises have occurred throughout history. Some, some economists say the first international financial crisis may have been in 1340, when King Edward III of England defaulted on his loans, and this caused bankers in Florence, Florentine bankers, who were financing England's war with France, to go bankrupt. Not too different from today. Um, now, if you look at the sheets I have, uh, normally, if it were a longer talk, I would have used PowerPoint, but I thought we want to have a discussion and a shorter talk. I've put what are some of the main issues on here. First of all, so often, look at all those books and tell, tell me how many of them tell you what a financial crisis is. There can be different definitions, but I start out by mentioning at least how a financial crisis can be defined. As an escalation of financial disturbances in which the value of financial institutions or assets drops rapidly. For example, there may be a run on banks where investors and depositors sell off their assets and withdraw their money because of fears that they're going to lose all their money. I can't even go into it. There are many types of financial crises. Uh, there are currency crises, banking crises, debt crises, like, for example, uh, Greece today. That's referred to as a sovereign debt crisis. Okay, let me get into what I'm supposed to be discussing here. Why are there financial crises? If you look at the sheet on the bottom, the causes of financial crises, the first thing I'm going to discuss is debt. Most financial crises are related in some way to excessive amounts of debt, whether by banks, consumers, the government, corporations, or all of the above. For example, I'm sure a lot of you know, the 2008 global financial crisis began with the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. I should mention a subprime mortgage mortgages are mortgages for borrowers 
who do not qualify for market interest rates because they have low income, poor credit rating. Banks and others around the world invested in U.S. mortgage-backed securities which were made up of these risky subprime mortgages because they thought they were safe and profitable investments. That's a long story why they thought that was the case. The crisis developed when the subprime mortgage holders could no longer pay, make the payments due on their mortgages. Um, okay, so the first issue is debt. I'm going to try to make these short so I get through all of them. And the later ones, the f psychological aspects of financial crises are the most interesting, so I want to spend some time on that. The second issue you can see on the list is leverage. Leverage is debt, but it's also something else. Financial crises not only result from excessive amounts of debt, but also from high degrees of leverage. What is leverage? Large debts relative to your assets or income. Um, bank, if a bank or a firm has more leverage, it's involved in more risk-taking because it has more borrowed funds relative to its assets. Banks and firms, firms often have high degrees of leverage. Why? Because they can greatly increase returns on investment if they're, and loans if they're using borrowed money. But a highly leveraged business or bank, if it fails, it's going to have much bigger losses because here it lent out all this money that it had borrowed, okay? Government regulation helps determine how highly leveraged banks can be. And I'm actually doing some looking at Canadian banks versus U.S. and European banks, why Canadian banks have not had as much leverage, why there's been more government regulation. That's a whole other story. Okay, if you look at the 1920s and the 1930s Great Depression, I, can't, I can only discuss it briefly. There are eerie similarities with the time leading up to the 2008 global financial crisis. To make a long story short, in the 1920s, see if this sounds familiar, there were anti-regulatory policies that led to rampant financial speculation. That was in the 1920s. With investment banks and firms selling and trading securities with little regulation. This widespread speculation combined with large amounts of borrowed money resulted in the stock market crash and the 1930s Great Depression. Well, what happened as a result of the Great Depression? 
Um, I can't, I'm not discussing Canadian banks here, I'm discussing U.S. banks. No Canadian banks failed in the Great Depression. The Great Depression resulted in the passage of, and if you look under leverage on my list, the 1933 U.S. Glass-Steagall Act, okay? As a result of the Great Depression. This was designed to decrease the riskiness of the financial system and to protect ordinary citizens like us. The act separated commercial banking from investment banking. And the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation um, protected our U.S., those who were in banks, I'll say our, to make a long story short, let's say we're U.S. Uh, uh, depositors in commercial banks. It protected our deposits in exchange for greater regulation of the commercial banking system. Investment banks, like Lehman Brothers, were separate. They could take more risk, but they didn't have insurance like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Okay, for about 50 years after the Glass-Steagall Act, there was relative stability in the U.S. financial banking system. But gradually, through uh, pressures, business pressures, banking pressures, plus the attitudes of government officials, like Alan Greenspan, for example, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve, under Alan Greenspan, gradually expanded more and more loopholes in the Glass-Steagall Act. The final part of this deregulation that was going on was in 1999. You see it there, the U.S. Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. That removed all remaining barriers between commercial banks and investment banks. So that was the end of the Glass-Steagall Act. This enabled banks commercial as well as investment, and now they were becoming combined, to become more leveraged and was a major factor contributing to the 2008 global financial crisis. Am I clear so far? Any questions so far? Yes. And I should not have said no Canadian, I did not say no, no Canadian banks have ever failed. Um, I, Canadian banking is more regulated. I, you, you are correct that sometimes they've been absorbed by larger banks, yes. 
um, and that has helped protect the banks, and that's also happened in the U.S. But in general, the Canadian banking system is much more regulated. Okay, point well taken. Okay, third issue, mismatches, and these build on each other. Financial crises result not only from debt and leverage, but also from mismatches. What do I mean by mismatches? When a country or a bank relies on short-term borrowing to make long-term investments or loans, there's a mismatch between the borrowing, which is short-term, and the investment and loans by the bank or firm, which is long-term. The worst financial crises usually involve banks in some way because banks are not only usually highly leveraged, but there's a big mismatch between borrowing and lending behavior. Let me give you an example. Commercial banks take a large portion of the money that people deposit in them and profitably lend it out to borrowers. When we deposit our money in the bank, it doesn't stay there. A very large percentage of it is lent out to borrowers. Now, how much depends on government regulation, the particular government, etc. Since depositors are unlikely to withdraw all their money at once, only a fraction of their money has to be kept in the bank's reserves in normal times. But lending out a large share of, by lending out a large share of their deposits, commercial banks perform an important function, credit creation. But banks usually borrow commercial banks in the form of deposits that people can withdraw on relatively short notice. In contrast, they make long, longer-term loans that cannot be converted into cash on short notice. What happens if depositors lose confidence and try to withdraw their funds en masse. Obviously, the bank is going to be in serious trouble. Um, so, the three issues I've discussed, what? Yes. Yeah. In, can, you, can you elaborate, but go on. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh, yes, yeah. It, this certainly, uh, it applies to individuals too, etc. Yes. Okay. The next issue I'd like to discuss is really get into some of the interesting psychological issues. And I'm going to discuss, because of where I'm giving the talk, I'm going to discuss the role of a couple Jewish economists who really have played an important role in interpreting financial crises. And I'm not just discussing them here because they're Jewish. They're important in their own right, but it's very interesting.
The next issue I want to discuss is bubbles. There's a major psychological aspect in financial crises that many economists never looked at because many economists always assumed that markets are efficient and that market actors behave rationally, of course. However, I've listed him here. I'm sure you have heard of him, and some of you have probably read his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Daniel Kahneman. Um, Daniel Kahneman is an Israeli-American psychologist, fascinating history, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2012 for examining the effects of psychology on financial crises. I won't say he was the only one, but it was, because I'm not sure, but it's certainly highly unusual for a psychologist to win the Nobel Prize in economics. But number one, they don't have a Nobel Prize in psychology. Uh, economics is the only social science in which they have a Nobel Prize. Number two, he really helped lay the foundation for behavioral economics. I don't have a lot of time here, but I think it might be fascinating just to briefly discuss his fascinating history, and I'm jumping over a lot. I think he was born in Tel Aviv in 1934. His family was not living there. They were living in France, but they were visiting relatives when his mother delivered. Um, they went back to France, then came the uh, Nazis and the Vichy government, and they, uh, they, uh, he, his father had connections. They were able to escape. They moved back to Palestine at the time, and then he grew up in Israel. He went to Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Today, he's a Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, but he also taught at UBC for several years, and he taught at University of California, Berkeley. Okay, um, financial, I'll discuss his role. Financial crises are often associated with bubbles, and I mention what a bubble is here. Um, every asset has some intrinsic value whether it's a house, or a stock, or a commodity such as oil. But it's hard to calculate the intrinsic value. How do we assess future profits with a stock? I don't do that, so in case you're wondering. How do we assess future profits with a stock? With oil, certainly we know in Alberta, with all the political issues, Sometimes you don't know how soon the oil can be pumped out of the ground with available resources and technology. If you want to invest in an oil firm, how do you know? How do most people assess value since it's so hard to assess intrinsic value? Most people often assume, it's found, psychologists tell us, that an asset's value is what other people think it's worth, okay? Like Vancouver houses today, for example. And 
Kahneman developed the term to describe this. I'm shortening his views greatly. He called it delusional optimism. I put it in there. He refers to delusional optimism in which people do things they shouldn't do in the financial system because they overestimate their chances of success. Thus, it's very fairly easy for an asset to become overvalued and for a bubble to be created. What is a bubble? A bubble is a large and long-lasting deviation of the price of some asset from its fundamental value. Okay? It's, it's, I should say deviation upward. Even when a bubble is identified before it bursts, and this is a problem with financial crises, collective errors of judgment, even when a bubble is identified before it bursts, people may continue to invest and fail to heed the warnings. 2008. For example, The Economist magazine, I remember the article, warned about inflated U.S. property prices in 2002. But U.S. property prices continued to rise for four more years before the housing bubble burst. I can't help adding something about Alan Greenspan here, and I'm taking too long. But Alan Greenspan, who tended to believe in the self-regulating market. He, he did a lot of good things, but he did a lot of very questionable things. He, um, he believed in the self-regulating market, but then when things started to get worse at times, he warned against an increase of asset values because of what he called irrational exuberance. In, in a 1996 speech to the American Enterprise Institute. So like Kahneman, he warned against irrational exuberance. It's like delusional optimism. The difference is that Greenspan, he was the head of the Federal Reserve, had such a negative effect on the stock market that I believe he never used the term again. To his woe, people kept quoting it, like me. Okay? Okay. One reason there are bubbles is, why do bubbles continue to exist? You'd think we had enough experience with bubbles since the 14th century. Why do they continue to exist? One reason there are bubbles is that financial experts often assume we have learned how to prevent future financial crises. One of the most important books on financial crises is called This Time is Different. And it traces financial crises from the 14th century to the present. And every time we think this time is different, we've become more sophisticated, we know how to avoid financial crises. What happened most recently? Beginning in the mid-1980s, central banks in developed countries 
seem to become better at limiting deep recessions. And many economists argued that the U.S. Federal Reserve had learned how to tame the business cycle. As a result, people referred to the 25-year period from the mid-1980s to about 2006 as the great moderation. We had figured out how to um, uh, avoid future financial crises, major financial crises. Since everyone assumed, not everyone, if you saw the, uh, the Big Short or read the book The Big Short, since most people assumed that downturns in the business cycle seem less of a threat, consumers took on more debt and risky mortgages for their homes and other assets. Financial deregulation and innovations in the U.S. and Europe also encouraged businesses, investors, and consumers to overextend themselves. Well, the 2008 financial crisis showed how wrong the experts were. Okay? Um, I, I have to mention here another Jewish economist. By the way, um, obviously, you know, a lot, there are a lot of Jews who have had a big role related to the financial crisis in one way or another. Alan Greenspan is also Jewish, of course, and one of his parents was Hungarian Jewish, the other was Romanian Jewish. But let me discuss one other fascinating person. Uh, a maverick Jewish economist, I've listed him here, Hyman P. Minsky. To me, he is the most interesting person of all in, when it comes to financial crises. Minsky was a maverick economist. He warned about the dangers of bubbles and deregulation as early as the 1960s. He was an economics professor at Washington University in St. Louis. His father was active in the Jewish section of the Socialist Party of Chicago. Minsky argued that Wall Street was encouraging businesses and individuals to take on too much risk. And he warned that this would result in a disastrous boom and bust cycle. The only way to prevent this, Minsky argued, was for government, the US government, to impose more regulation on bankers and financiers. Many of Minsky's colleagues viewed his ideas as radical and not worthy of consideration, and he was largely shunned in his department. Uh, academia can be kind of political. Minsky, the saddest part was that Minsky died in 1996. And in 1998, two years later, when there was a financial crisis in Russia, a, me uh, a member of a global investment management firm, Pim PIMCO, I have the guy's name, 
coined the term a Minsky moment to describe the 1998 financial crisis. And many more economists in 2008 have described the, the 2008 global financial crisis as a Minsky's moment. So Minsky lives on. Let me give you an example how Minsky lives on. I haven't read the book yet, if, but you might, if you want to read about him. There's a book that came out this year, 2016, Princeton University Press, called Why Minsky Matters. Okay? Um, in courses, which I can't do here, I take Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, which he put forth in the 1960s, and apply it to the 2008 financial crisis. And it's amazing how it applies. I can't get into it here, but I'll just mention that it's in five stages, his financial instability hypothesis. If you think this is forward-looking, you're right. One, he talked about displacement, occurs when investors get excited about an investment, a war, or a sharp change in economic policy. So in 2003, I'll just give you one example, U.S. Federal Reserve Board Chair Alan Greenspan re reduced short-term interest rates to 1%, and there was an unexpected influx of foreign money, especially from China. Thus, investors and consumers became excited about the extremely low cost of borrowing. That was the displacement. I can't go through the rest. His second stage is boom. His third stage is euphoria. His fourth stage is profit-taking. And his fifth stage is panic. And he wrote this in the 60s and was viewed as a maverick who didn't know what he was talking about. Okay, last thing, and then I think I'll stop and deal with any questions you have. Another psychological factor in financial crises is financial contagion. Financial crises tend to be unexpected because they show collective errors in judgment. They are highly emotional events, as Minsky pointed out a long time ago, and as Kahneman has pointed out, with investors and lenders often showing a herd mentality. And this helps explain why small shocks that initially affect only one bank or a few banks or one region of a country may spread rapidly elsewhere, okay? And one prime example was the, when the fourth largest U.S. investment bank, Lehman Brothers, went broke. The U.S. government felt, well, they couldn't let this go on. They had to intervene because of contagion. Before 1997, people usually used the term contagion only when they were referring to the spread of a medical disease. However, that changed in July 1997, 
when there was a currency um, crisis in Thailand, the Thai currency, the baht, uh, uh, there was a currency crisis where, great for a variety of reasons, it greatly decreased in value. The Thai currency crisis quickly spread to other countries in the region. And um, I, I am making a list of who coined these terms, why they coined them. It's fascinating, because sometimes a coin, term is coined for one reason, and it takes on other characteristics. For example, do you know what the bricks are? Uh, the, the four emerging economies that they felt um, uh, were, were going to challenge um, the others, uh, the developed countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, okay? Um, who, who developed that term? Uh, it was developed by uh, someone at Goldman Sachs. Why? because they felt that these would be good places to invest, these are emerging economies, etc. Well, the fascinating part is that the, along with South Africa, the BRIC, B-R-I-C, became the BRICS, and they hold annual summits now. They didn't develop the term, but it gave a reality to the term that they picked up on. And someday, maybe it'll be in another lifetime, I don't know, I would love to take all these terms, say their origin, and what, why they were developed, and what their actual use has become. Anyway, uh, someone, and I have at home the name, developed the term contagion to refer to the spread of financial market turmoil across countries. Several factors, be, and why? because it spread from Thailand to other Southeast Asian and East Asian countries. One currency after another fell in the Asian financial crisis. Several factors cause financial contagion. I'll just mention two. First, as economic and geographic regions have become more interdependent with one another, it's not surprising contagion has increased, okay? And it's especially true, this global interdependence with the U.S. and China. Everyone used to say, when the U.S. sneezes, the world gets a cold. Now they better start saying, when the U.S. and China sneeze, the world gets a cold, or U.S. or China. Um, second, there's guilt by association. When Thailand devalued its currency in July 1997, investors worried that Indonesia South Korea, Malaysia, and the Philippines would do the same because they assumed they're in the same region, they have similar economic circumstances, so investors rushed to sell their currencies, causing more devaluation. In reality, some of these countries were in more trouble than others, but they were all grouped together. And this is part of the panic that Minsky talks about. Okay, um, I could go on, but why don't I, st I, I was going to say where are we today, well, um, but um, I, I, why don't I stop 
And why don't uh, I just open it to questions? Do people have questions, comments, things you want to raise? Yes. <laughs> what? Okay, I can't give an easy answer to that, but I'd say um, um, the, uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned, when China sneezes, the world gets a cold too. And people, a lot of people are moving out of riskier assets right now, but that can change to government bonds, gold. A major concern is that China's growth has slowed which has pulled down prices of oil and other commodities. This le has led to concerns that banks could have losses on their loans to commodity producers. Um, hopes in Canada and elsewhere have also been linked to growth in the U.S., but that is fall right now is falling below expectations. They were going to continue to raise, Yellen was going to continue to raise interest rates. Now, obviously, there are second thoughts, and she even talked about possible negative interest rates. You know, uh, she speculated. Negative interest rates in some European countries and Japan, where you basically pay to park your money, and the banks pay to park their money with the central bank in the country. Um, the negative interest rates in some European countries in Japan have increased fears that central banks have no more tools to increase growth. However, things others say things aren't as bad now and they aren't as bad as it was before the 2008 crisis. Banks have more capital now than they did during the 2008 crisis. There is the, uh, I have drawn a blank, the Dodd-Frank bill, which was passed for some more regulation in the U.S. after the 2008 financial crisis. In some, some aspects of Dodd-Frank have been implemented, some have not, but it, there is some more regulation. Um, obviously, in Canada, we're concerned about a slowing economy, an inflated housing market in some regions, consumer debt, a depressed oil market, and a falling Canadian dollar. Um, the, uh, the, uh, so, I, you know, I, believe it or not, I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist, <laughs> but I think, you know, these are cyclical, these are cyclical, and one of the hardest parts is determining for people who study this field, what's short-term, what's medium-term, what's long-term. Let me just give you one example, the 1980s foreign debt crisis. That, in Africa and Latin America, that turned out to be longer term. The Asian financial crisis turned out to be much shorter term. A lot of those East Asian, Southeast Asian countries, you know, recovered quite well and quite quickly. So is China's downturn short term? medium-term, long-term. My view is China's, I might be wrong, but my view is, barring great political instability, China's on the way up. And this is a, they have to make major changes in their economy in a lot of ways. But they're clearly, when you look at their investment, 
uh, they're on the way up. Uh, I was just looking at a figure, Latin America in 2015. China provided more funding in loans, investment to Latin America than the World Bank and the um, uh, Inter-American Development Bank combined. Okay, who else? Yeah, sorry, yes. Sorry, I can't. I... Oh, sorry. If, uh, if you consider that... Uh, take the first one and then I'll take it. last could be, could have a good impact on the economy. And second question, you didn't touch in another economy, another Jewish economy, I think, Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. My feeling is that uh, I, I strongly disagree with Milton Friedman's views on a lot of issues, but I separate my own personal feelings from the, uh, the strength of an economist. And uh, in terms of uh, his view of the unregulated market, and as you say, the Chicago boys, I'm in a very different camp. I'm more of an interventionist liberal where I feel there needs to be some government intervention and regulation. But what I always say in classes and in my research is I separate my personal opinions from my estimation of an individual. Friedman got a Nobel Prize, and even though I strongly disagree with him in many ways, he was incredibly forward-looking in some ways. In 1990, let me give you two examples. In 1999, uh, the euro currency was formed, okay? In 2001, there was a great debate that very few people know about between Mundell, Robert Mundell, who's Canadian, who was a Nobel Prize winner, and Milton Friedman, an American Nobel Prize winner. And Mundell is called the father of the euro by many people. He felt the euro currency, it was a common area, it would do very well. Friedman in 2001 in the debate argued, and I have the debate, it's in a magazine, I have the article, if anyone's interested, I could send it to you. Friedman argued in 2001, um, the euro currency will fail, or it's gonna have major problems without more fiscal unity and political unity. He argued that in 2001. The other example, 1953, when we had fixed exchange rates for currencies, Friedman argued in an article that we should shift to floating exchange rates. I think that was in 53. It was in the 50s. It might have been 57. 50, uh, I'm not sure which year. But in 1971 to 73, we switched to floating 
currencies. Was that the right thing to do? Maybe not. But it happened what he said he felt should happen. Um, so on the one hand, I'm in a totally different camp than he is. In another hand, I can understand why he was a Nobel Prize winner. He was a very good economist. I don't like categorizing people because they're complex. And especially economists who are Nobel Prize winners are complex. And I might agree with some of what they say and strongly disagree with what some of them might say. Certainly the Euro's in great trouble. And one of my regrets is um, the European financial crisis, I've been looking at that a lot, I haven't discussed it. And in many ways it's more significant than in long-term effects than the U.S. global financial crisis in the sense that the European crisis is growing on and uh, Europe doesn't know how to deal with it and it's a major concern. Yes? Oh, and he had a second question, but go on. That's okay. That's okay. Oh, Glass-Steagall would be good, but it hasn't been reinstated. There are elements. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's very hard to turn back the clock. And uh, you couldn't, I think it would be hard to totally reinstate it, but certainly I feel there needs to be more regulation. But even that's a two-sided coin. If there's too much regulation, some people argue, and there's some truth in it, then it can, uh, it can stifle creativity, innovation. So regulation is a, um, a, uh, a uh, you know, it's a loaded term. Uh, it's not either or. And it's just like, people arguing with the European financial crisis. Germany has, some people say, they've pressed too much for austerity. Others say, no, there should be more government stimulation. Okay? I would say both are necessary in different ways, and, uh, you know, it's not one or the other. Okay? Okay, go on. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Because, in fact, there is no profit margin left for it. Yes. So this, to actually look for profit by those lending institutions, they've gone to another avenue, and that is the auto loan sector. Mm -hmm. Exorbitant rates mm -hmm. for people who are ill-equipped or even ill-qualified to take mm -hmm. on that indebtedness. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Can I just interrupt for a second? Uh, you're making a good point. Um, I only discussed the housing bubble, but even in the 2008 financial crisis, there were uh, all kinds of borrowing that people did on automobiles, other things like that, that, uh, that were put in uh, 
you know, and sold, and, and that that also were part of the financial crisis. So that you're making a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm not terribly religious, so uh, I, I'm, uh, if, if the truth be told, I'm religious in a personal sense, not in an institutional sense. Um, I, uh, uh, I think a little more uh, modesty, learning from our mistakes. Uh, you know, the fact that Reinhardt and Rogoff are the authors of this, the book This Time is Different, realizing that this time is not as different as we think it is, and learning, learning more from the past. That's all I can say. Um, and also, uh, you know, there has to be not, the regulators can't be captured too much by the regulated. And often the regulators are captured by the regulated. For example, a lot of people, I didn't even discuss credit rating agencies, Moody's, Standard & Poor's, where were they? in the global financial crisis. Why didn't they um, downgrade these banks? Why didn't they look at the more carefully at these mortgage-backed securities, which were put in these huge collateralized debt obligations? Why didn't they look at them more carefully? Um, does anyone know why? Yeah. Most of them are they're, they're largely paid by the banks that they regulate. So the regulator is paid by the regulated. And if Standard & Poor's downgraded someone too much, well, what would they do? They would go to Moody's or vice versa. So it's not true of countries. They'll downgrade countries, you know, where they're not paid. But when they when we're talking about the financial institutions, they're paid by the regulators. So, you know, there has to be less capture. I, yeah, any other questions, comments? Yeah. Well, they're able to be more intense now because of globalization spreading around the globe. Obviously, it depends where the crisis starts, where it ends. One big change, I have a very interesting quote I skipped over a lot time-wise related to what you said. Neil Ferguson, in his book, The Ascent of Money, says, quote, 
So we're in unknown territory in a way right now. He said, during the Asian crisis of 1997 to 98, it was conventional wisdom that financial crises were more likely to happen on the periphery of the global economy. Okay? The periphery being the poorer countries uh, or the developing countries in East Asia or Africa or Latin America. Yet the biggest threats to the global financial system in this new century have not come not from the periphery but from the core. And one thing I'm interested in is, and I'm, I'm actually to a class um, next month, I'm giving a talk to a development class on financial crises and changes in global power relations. And I think, you know, it's very interesting what happened after, after the 1980 global financial uh, foreign debt crisis in Africa and Latin America, it gave us the upper hand. You know, World Bank, IMF, structural adjustment loans. After the 2008 global financial crisis, some of the changes going on are very interesting. The China is dissatisfied. You know, China helped us get out of the 2008 crisis. Not the U.S. started it, and China helped us get out of it. So China's dissatisfied that it doesn't have enough influence in the World Bank, the IMF. As a result, they have weighted voting, and China's got a lot more votes. So does India in those institutions now. First in the bank, it's going to be in the IMF too. Uh, uh, secondly, China is setting up its own institutions which might compete with the World Bank IMF. There are a lot of changes going on. And, um, but the issue is, it's not only the frequency, or it's the, as you said, the scope of the crisis. And the 2000, if it's, if it's in the core where these crises are occurring, this can cause huge changes. I mean, the 2008 crisis was the biggest since the Great Depression. Well, where's the end of the European crisis? You know? Europe can't deal with Ukraine. It can't deal with, um, so Russia is getting bolder and bolder in Ukraine. It can't deal with its refugee crisis. And it can't deal with the Greek financial crisis. And some of the others down the road, like Portugal or even Italy, and there's questions about the euro. And probably in June, there's going to be a referendum in Britain whether to stay in the European Union. I assume they're going to be, have some sanity and they're going to stay in. But, you know, uh, so I think it's almost more significant what Neil Ferguson says, where the crises have changed to than how many little crises are there around the world. To me, that's more significant now. As far as have we learned a lot, you know, um, 
you know, I, their, their title this time is different, is very facetious. I don't know. Uh, I don't think we have nothing like the subprime mortgages, but I'm sure you know all about the debt in Canada. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm not sure how much we've learned. Yeah. How much Nash? Well, that's a very good question. It's not just the debt. The U.S. is the largest debtor in the world, but it can, in absolute terms, but it can handle it. It's debt relative to your exports, debt relative so you can pay off the debt, debt relative to the size of your GNP, or your gross domestic product or gross national income, and debt um, relative to how fast you're growing. So it's not, I, I discussed it in two simple terms here, excessive debt. It's relative to these things. So for example, um, in a lot of, in the 1980s foreign debt crisis, a lot of East Asian countries, like South Korea, etc., also had debt, big debts. But they were had, for a variety of reasons, were far better exporters than African and Latin American countries. And there are reasons why, in terms of their development model. East Asia, like China and Japan, have followed export-led growth models. So they were able to export themselves out of debt. So you can't just look at their absolute debt. What is their debt relative to their ability to get out of it? Yeah. They're so low to stimulate the economy. Everyone's trying to stimulate their economies. Well, all of these things, all of these things you mentioned, Elisa, all of these things you mentioned, um, have, you can see, historical examples. So, who knows? Um, the, uh, obviously, it depends on how someone's borrowing. Are you borrowing short-term, long-term? If your mortgage is shorter-term and you're borrowing shorter-term, obviously, if interest rates go up, and as people and institutions get more in debt, they tend to borrow more and more in short term because that's the only way they can borrow. So it means that then you become more vulnerable to increase in interest rates. The 2000, I haven't discussed these. I do discuss them in my text. The 1980s foreign debt crisis in Africa and Latin America, um, the uh, uh, they originally borrowed so much 
in the 70s, these developing countries, because there was a lot of ready oil money being recycled from the OPEC crisis. The, what those OPEC countries did was recycle their money through the banks. So they borrowed at extremely low interest rates. And then for a variety of reasons in the early 80s, the interest rates shot up. And related to US policies under Reagan, etc. And uh, these countries were out of luck. So you're absolutely right. You know, it's a false sense of uh, security that one can have. Yes? Sorry, I, I didn't. That's really an interesting question, because to me, part of that is a, a whole other issue. Um, the uh, Venezuela is, has became more and more dependent on oil. And with the oil, and they were already in bad shape, and with the oil crisis, that's been one of the biggest factors. Obviously, there have been other factors too, but um, to me, that's a different, you know, there are other issues involved there. Um, there's a whole amount of literature now, which I deal with somewhat, called the resource curse. <laughs> Resources can be a blessing and they can be a curse. And in many developing countries, they're a curse. They contribute to corruption, they contribute to great inequalities between wealthy and poor, etc. And there's all kinds of interesting literature on resource curse. Um, Middle East, the, the wealthiest, what is the wealthiest country in the world in terms of per capita GNP? Cotter. Qatar is by far the wealthiest. I think the average per capita income is above 130,000. Well, in some ways, Qatar is still a developing country. Um, uh, then you have countries like the, um, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where the, all of its resources cause all these conflicts where other countries get involved. Um, there's a really interesting article called Resources, a Blessing or a Curse. They aren't only a curse, but they can be. I think for Venezuela, um, oil has been a curse. They felt, Chavez, they just felt they could do all kinds of things with it. They could aid Cuba, they could get involved here, they could get involved there, they overextended themselves. There are just a lot of different issues. And then what happened to oil? It tanked. So uh, part of the message is don't be dependent too much on resources. 
Canada has a bit of a resource curse too. For a developed country, we definitely have a resource curse. Not as bad as developing countries, but we have one. Um, anything else? Is that it? Okay. If anyone wants to talk, okay. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>